Guess what, Lions? For as little as $5 a month, you can get access to exclusive bonus audio content and help this program grow by joining the Lions of Liberty Pride. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com support. Welcome to Felony Friday, a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday is a weekly show that publishes every Friday. And we focus each week on exposing injustice in the broken criminal justice system. Felony Friday is one of three shows published on the Lions of Liberty podcast feed. We have a show every Monday hosted by Mark Clare. That is our OG Lions of Liberty podcast, the original Lions of Liberty podcast. And Mark just passed his 300th episode of that show. Every Wednesday, we have Electric Liberty Land with Brian McWilliams. It's your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. It's a wildly entertaining show. You don't want to miss it. So make sure to subscribe to receive the Lions of Liberty podcast on iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast, so you don't miss any of these three shows. This is the 79th episode of Felony Friday, so that means you could find the show notes with links and notes to everything that I'm going to talk about in reference with my guest today at lionsofliberty.com slash FF79. For today's show, just to give you a little teaser here, I interviewed a legal scholar and law professor by the name of Mark Osler. Now, most of you probably haven't heard of Mark, but he has made a gigantic impact in the criminal justice system. He was actually one of the key driving forces behind the push for clemency that saw so many people be granted clemency by President Barack Obama. He's truly a remarkable man, and I can't wait for you guys to hear this interview. Before we get to the interview, though, I want to tell you guys about the sponsor for today's show. Today's show is sponsored by, once again, MartinArmory.com. And MartinArmory.com was founded on the simple goal of making buying a gun easy and also affordable. A lot of these online gun dealers try to carry every gun under the sun, and they're all over the place. Their pricing is all over the place. But at martinarmory.com, they focus on carrying just a few select guns, just the top 25 guns out of rifles, shotguns, and handguns. They just focus on the best in each category. And by doing that, by using this unique business model, they're able to deliver you guns at ridiculous prices. So go for yourself. Find out for yourself. Go to martinarmory.com. Pick out a gun you want. Buy it, go to checkout, put in code at checkout LIONS to get free shipping on that price. And I promise you're going to be satisfied with the price and you're going to be very happy with your free shipping. All right, guys, that's all I got. Let's get rolling with today's show. My guest today on Felony Friday is Mark Osler. Mark is a legal scholar, law professor at the University of St. Thomas School of Law in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and a staunch critic of narcotics policy and capital punishment. 
Osler received his JD from Yale Law School in 1990. He worked as an assistant U.S. attorney in Detroit before beginning work as a law professor at Baylor University in 2000 and then leaving for St. Thomas in 2010. At St. Thomas, he founded the nation's first law school clinic on federal commutations, and he has advocated for an expansive use of the presidential pardon power. Osler has written extensively on clemency, sentencing, and narcotics policy. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and in several uh, journals at some of the nation's most respected universities. He's also the author of the book Jesus on Death Row, which critiques capital punishment in the United States through an examination of the biblical account of Jesus Christ's trial and execution. Mark, it's an honor to have you here on Felony Friday. Well, thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming on the show. And as I, you know, as I listed there in your intro, you have a really impressive career. It was really, really fun reading a lot of your work and looking into everything you've accomplished. Um, I didn't get a chance to to read your books, but I do I do want to talk about them. You know, impacted lives as a law professor. You've done this incredible work to help nonviolent offenders to to get clemency through these. Uh, clemency clinics. And before we get into all that, I want to start out with really a straightforward question and just find out what what got you motivated to want to study law, to to work in the field of, to eventually be a lawyer and then be a law professor? Yeah, well, like any simple question, the the answer is a little complicated, but but I grew up in Detroit. Um, You know, as a a little kid, we lived in the city itself. and, And my first memory is the riots uh, you know, the insurrection really in, in Detroit. Um, and that, that, uh, like a lot of families, um, black and white, we, we moved out of the city after that. Um, and I went, I went back later after college and I had a degree in history. Uh, I could get a job, but it was delivering flowers. And so I was delivering flowers, needed a second job. And I answered a a little ad in the paper that said young resourceful person needed, which could have been a lot of stuff if you think about it. Um, but it turned out someone needed a process server and there's no lawyers in my family. Uh, they're all artists and social workers. Um, but that's how I got into law was at the the very bottom rung as a process server. Um, and the reason that I was attracted to it is once I went out there and met the people who were being sued or suing, um, I realized there's these incredible stories there. I mean, I, I probably wasn't the best process server because I always waited and opened the envelope and read all the the you know the, the summons and the complaints and everything else and the affidavits. Um, so I decided to go to law school. And when I went to law school, I really became convicted of the fact that that what was most important in the law in terms of direct impact on people's lives was criminal law. That um, you know you were never going to make a lot of money doing it, but it was something that that had to be fulfilling. Because in every case, someone's freedom, sometimes someone's life, was going to be at stake. And uh, I worked my first summer in law school at the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago, um, which was fascinating. Um, and I and I, I really really got hooked. Um, and you know, from the, from the start, I had a lot of influences on both sides, both the prosecution and the defense side. Uh, there is there is a connection there, and they do have in common, hopefully. Um, you know, a deep sense of the importance of that work. And that was, that was a part of it. Um, and so when, 
I paid off my loans by working at a firm after about three years. I, I moved as quickly as I could over to the U.S. Attorney's Office in Detroit and was a prosecutor there for five years. So while working in Detroit as a, as a prosecutor, um, I think it was the Rolling Stone article. I, I saw that you were you know, talking about how you dealt with a lot of people, putting people away in prison for, for several years for having you know, little crack rocks the size of, of sugar cubes. So what was there anything that triggered your move away from working in prosecution to moving into uh, the field as a, a legal scholar and as a, as a law professor? Yeah, I, there was, and especially that that made me want to be the kind of advocate that I am now, and, and and that is that, you know, I was I was in Detroit. It was the 1990s. I was a starting prosecutor, um, and that meant I had a lot of crack cases, and a lot of them were really small time crack cases. Five point three grams of crack, just over the threshold for a five year mandatory minimum sentence, um, and you know, for a while, I think I I believed in the project that. It did seem fair and objective that there be a certain standard that applied to everybody, um, that that would, you know, it was promoted as driving racism out of the system, among other things. Um, it was hard to believe that when you were involved in so many cases, in part because all my crack cases involved black defendants, which made it seem like maybe the not racist part of it uh, wasn't playing out in real life. But, but the thing that made the biggest difference uh, was the arguments that defense attorneys made. Um, there were two de- federal defenders there in particular, Andrew Densimo and Richard Helfrich. Uh, and I remember Densimo particularly in cases where it was a mandatory minimum sentence. We go to sentencing and I didn't have to argue anything. We all knew what the sentence had to be. Uh, but the judge would turn to him and say, are you going to make your usual futile speech? And he did. He'd go on for 20, 25 minutes and, and talk about what was wrong with sending this 18-year-old black kid to prison for 10 years for you know, selling 5.3 grams of crack and having a gun? Uh, and you know, it never mattered. It was futile. And at the end, the judge would turn to me, and I'd shrug and say, Your Honor, it's a mandatory sentence, and off you'd go. Um, but I couldn't get his voice out of my head. That I, you know, I did hear what he had to say, the arguments that – uh, you know, it wasn't going to make a difference, that it was going to ruin the life and the potential of this 18-year-old, um, what it was doing to to the black community in Detroit to, to pluck out so many people. Um, I remember specifically once a defense attorney saying at sentencing, you could drive by there right now and there's someone else in there selling crack. This doesn't matter. And it, it turned out that place was on my way home. And so I did. You know, I drove by that place. He was right. There was someone else selling crack. And, you know, we are going to lock somebody up for five, ten years, and it wasn't keeping anybody from getting crack. It wasn't making any difference on the ground. Um, and so, you know, I decided that uh, I would I'd go teach. I'd go, you know, examine this and, and dig into it. And, uh, you know, they I'd been in practice for a while and, and – uh, law schools aren't particularly fond of that. They want people fresh out of school and a Supreme Court clerkship, and I wasn't that person. Uh, but Baylor gave me a shot. Uh, they they let me, you know, in at the ground floor as an assistant professor, and uh, I went down and started doing my reading and writing, and discovered that everything I'd seen at the ground level in Detroit was just a fraction of the the whole of this this big ball of injustice. As a professor, you probably have a 
maybe a different perspective on this than other people in the uh, in the field of law. But obviously, recently with Jeff Sessions coming out and bringing back mandatory minimums, I know I've seen a couple instances where you know, judges have reluctantly sort of said that you know they're giving they have to give this mandatory minimum sentence, but they disagree with it. I'm, I'm curious your opinion on. Do you think a lot of prosecutors and, and judges have moved past thinking that this uh, mandatory minimum is actually serving a purpose and is actually helping to curb drug use? Do you think they're sort of going to be enforcing these mandatory minimum, minimums reluctantly? I think I think many of them will, and that, that's because you get used to doing things a certain way. For a long time, you know, we and I say we because I was a prosecutor. You know, we were used to just standing on the mandatory minimum. But since 2013, particularly with uh, Eric Holder's memo about about enhancements, um, that hasn't been true, and it has been a little bit of a new era. And you've moved progressively that way. Um, you know, since Booker in, in 2005, really, which was what made the, the sentencing guidelines in the federal system no longer mandatory. Um, and what we're seeing Jeff Sessions push for, and it really hasn't been implemented yet, is to go back to the old days. You know, you've had this steady, slow movement towards more discretion, more humane sentences, um, fewer ridiculous life sentences. Uh, and and what this is is a, is a pushback going the other way. And and there are going to be a lot of people on the bench um, and in prosecutor's offices uh, who, who have a problem with that. I mean, there's some who are outspoken. Uh, you know, the judge you may be referring to is Mark Bennett in Iowa, um, who has written a lot about this. In fact, the two of us co-authored an article um, about this. And, you know, he's, he's a very brave guy. But I'll tell you, the truth is that he speaks for a lot of judges who are silent as well. And there's a lot of prosecutors who uh, you know, agreed with the Holder memo, who are unfortunately going to be yanked back to walking in lockstep uh, towards retribution with everybody else. Hey, you know, I, I probably read that article and didn't realize at the time that it was you who co-authored it. So I will uh, link to that on the show notes page for, for everyone to check out. Okay. And I want to talk about, so Amy Pova, who was a a uh, recent guest on this show, she suggested that, that I bring you on. And she brought up just the amazing work you've done with these clemency clinics, working with Rachel Barkow. So could you explain to my audience what exactly is meant by a clemency clinic, how they work, and how they help to, how they help uh, you know, nonviolent offenders to be granted clemency? Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, they're the way we got to that is, is while I was at Baylor for those those 10 years, what I really worked on was the 100 to 1 ratio between crack and powder. And, uh, you know, we really I, – I worked with a bunch of other people. Um, we went to the courts. Uh, and eventually, um, you know, we won. <laughs> um, and in 2009, there was a case the day after President Obama was inaugurated. The United States versus Spears was, was my case. And in that – that opinion, which followed up on Kimbrough, uh, it was Scalia who wrote that judges could categorically reject the 100 to 1 ratio. So the day that came out, Doug Berman called me up, uh, who's a professor at Ohio State who I'd worked with on these things. And he said, what are we going to do next? <laughs> I was kind of floored because I was thinking, you know, next, let's celebrate this for, a, for you know, 20 minutes at least. Um, but uh, we, um, 
he said clemency clemency should be the next thing and that uh that made sense to me because now we had new law really we had a we had a, a decision from a fairly conservative court saying that you know these crack sentences were too long so how are we going to reach the people who are st- still influenced uh you know are in prison under 100 to 1 and then in 2010 the fair sentencing act changed the statute as well, from 101 to 18 to 1, but they didn't make it retroactive. And so by starting the clinic and really focusing on clemency, my initial impulse was to, that, you know, you had thousands of people who were in prison who wouldn't be in prison if they were sentenced under the law that all three branches of government now realize was appropriate. Uh, you know, they were under one that had been rejected by all three branches. Um, and I thought it'd be great to take some cases myself. And then I thought, you know what, most of the stuff I do that is good, I do with my students. Um, Baylor didn't have any clinics. And and one of the reasons that I came to St. Thomas is I came up here and and gave a talk and uh, they said, you ever think about leaving Baylor and (laughs) coming here to teach criminal law? And I said, well, can I have a clinic? (laughs) And they said, yes. Um, And that was one of the big motives for coming here. And I'm glad I did. Is that, that with the clinic, what we could do is identify individuals uh, who were good candidates for clemency and then work up their their clemency petition. And, and the beauty of a clemency petition as a student project is it's, a, it's about a narrative. It's about telling the story. You know, what we know about so many people who are convicted of a crime is those 20 minutes of their life, you know, when, when the crime was committed. Uh, and the rest of their life is, is, is unknown. It's untold. Um, but that's that's kind of crazy. Um, and so with a clemency petition, we're able to, to go to get to know that person, to tell the rest of the story, not only before the crime occurred, but after. You know, we think when the prison door shuts that that person's life ends. That's not true. Incredible things happen. People transform uh, often in prison. Um, you know, they, they change their religion. They change their identity in substantial ways. They, they, several people have told me, you know, when I went to prison, I read a book for the first time. Um, and so it was a beautiful thing to be able to send the students out and I have them go spend two days with each of our clients in the prison, uh, to go and find out what the rest of the story was and then tell that story and then put that all in a document that you address to the president of the United States and and send it in. I mean, there's a deep power in that, that, that you're appealing to the most powerful person in the world on behalf of the least powerful person in the world. Um, and the, one of the great things about the clinic was getting to share that uh, with the students. That is truly great stuff, Mark. We're just going to take a real quick commercial break to hear from today's sponsor, and we'll be right back. I firmly believe one of the most important things you can do to protect yourself and your loved ones is to own a firearm. But for a lot of people, buying a gun can be an overwhelming process. There are just so many options, and not everyone feels comfortable walking into a gun store. Well, our friends at martinarmory.com are doing their part to change that. Martin Armory was founded with a simple goal, to make buying a gun simple and affordable. Instead of carrying thousands of different guns, martinarmory.com only carries 25. This allows them to focus on providing the most popular guns on the market at insanely cheap prices. And now for a limited time, their prices are even more insane as martinarmory.com is offering Lions of Liberty listeners free shipping. 
Simply go to martinarmory.com, pick an awesome gun, and enter the promo code LIONS. Again, that's martinarmory.com. The promo code is LIONS. So are there any specific stories that stick out to you, any specific cases that your students worked on and, and brought to you that really stand out of some of these prisoners who had done some amazing things either in prison to, to reform themselves? Um, is there anything that stands out and then your students were able to help to grant them clemency? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, there's there's an awful lot of cases. Um but, uh, you know, there's there's really two projects, and you touched on one of them before. So I started the clinic here at St. Thomas, and then once Clemency Project 2014 started up, um, I was talking to Rachel Barco at NYU, and, and we realized that there needed to be attorneys who specialized in this. Um, and so we got a grant from Open Society, enough to hire eight attorneys to work full-time for one year. And we created a, a pop-up law firm that did nothing but clemency at the end of the Obama administration. And you know, so between that and the clinic, um, we ended up getting over 100 people uh, out of prison through clemency. Now, I mean, some of them, uh, the, the stories are, are pretty pretty remarkable. Um, one of the ones that was most emotional for me was a guy named Ronald Blunt. Uh, Ronald was from Louisiana. He was addicted to crack. His brother was selling crack. He picked up, like a lot of people, a couple low-level offenses for selling to support his habit. Um, and then he'd really pretty much bottomed out. Uh, he you know, was doing anything to get a rock, basically. Uh, he, and this is, this is from the pre-sentence investigation report, <laughs> you know, some of these things came out of, uh, he was begging for change in the park across the street. Um, he was living on his mom's porch because they wouldn't let him in the house. He only had one change of clothes. Um, he was, his role in the crack conspiracy was limited to, to very minor activities. Most of it was steering people to where they could buy crack. They come to him and say, "Where can I buy some crack?" And he'd show them, and then he'd get a cut. And and you know he was uh, that's what he was after. So he gets caught, and because of the two priors, he gets a life sentence. Um, you know, there's something so profoundly stupid <laughs> about that about giving a life sentence to someone who is so low down on whatever organizational chart you make for for that crack organization. Um, so got to know Ronald, got to know, you know, how he had changed when he'd gone to prison, what he had done, what he had accomplished. And it was pretty remarkable. Um, I, I went down to Louisiana and, and met with him in prison. My students did the same. And he called me every Friday, every Friday he called just to, to check in, to see if anything had happened, to talk about the project as a whole, to talk about other people and what was happening with their cases. And for... You know, two years, nothing happened, but we talked every week. Um, and then it was his, his time and he got the grant. Uh, and it was, it was an incredible thing. Um, you know, what, what they do is when they, they have, uh, they have a grant, they call you up as the attorney and then they have you call the person who's receiving clemency and the warden calls the, the inmate down to the, the office, but doesn't tell them usually what's, Why? And if you're called to the warden's office, it can mean a lot of things. It can mean you're being transferred. It can mean you're in trouble. Uh, you know, you're being put into to isolation. You know, there's a lot of things. Um, 
But then they hand them the phone and you get to be the person to tell them that after 15 years, after 20 years, after 27 years for one of our clients, they're going to, they're going to go home. And, uh, you know, I knew that, I knew that Ronald was, uh, a chaplain in the prison. So they handed him the phone and I said, God is good. And there was a pause and he said, all the time. Um, and that's a moment I'll, I'll never forget. Uh, and that's something that, you know, more than anything, 23-year-old law students created. <laughs> and Ronald created himself because of what he did while he was in prison. Um, and the deep tragedy is that that stopped happening the moment Trump was inaugurated. Yeah, and that's, that's, that's really an amazing story. And I've had uh, Israel Torres on the show, who shared shared his story about you know very similar that moment when he found out yeah. that he was getting clemency and just the emotions uh, flowing at that moment. It was it was incredible to hear that him relive that firsthand. And I've also had on on the other side of that uh, Beth Curtis, who sure. she's the founder of the uh, the organization Life for Pot, and her brother uh, John Nock is is still in prison for a nonviolent yeah. marijuana offense. Are, are there any, any people that you've worked with in the, in the clemency clinic or the, the pop-up law firm to the clemency project 2014, any cases out there that, that really just kind of, just kind of aggravate you that, you know, they were great cases for someone to get clemency and, and it didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. There, there are. And I mean, uh, some of them I can't really talk about specifically because the, the, the cases I've talked about, like, like Ronald Blunt, you know, I've gotten express permission from, okay. from my client to talk about it in depth and the detail and, and talk about the, the documents and everything. And, and a lot of people, you know, don't give, don't give that, that same permission. Um, but I can say that, that I have, you know, since January 20th, I've gone into prisons and sat down with people that were denied. And, you know, the, the thing that has been pretty, pretty amazing is more than once I've gone in to the prison, met with the person, uh, and it feels more like they're consoling me than vice versa <laughs> about what's going on. Um, and I, I think, you know, in a way that's, that's really true, but uh, one of the one of the big tragedies about this, and one of the lessons we we need to keep in mind for when another president comes in, is that there were problems with this process, and it was wildly uneven. Um, you know that that I can't say that the people who got out were necessarily better candidates than a lot of the people who are still in, um, and and that's something that that we all have to live with is that failure. So, so what is the next step? As you said, right now with the new administration, really there's there's not a lot going on. Maybe not a lot that can be done. What what is the next next step forward to continue? Maybe once we get a new administration, to get to. I mean, is it getting more political? Is it uh, finding a you know when we have a, another presidential election? Is it working with the candidates to make them aware of the the power of presidential commutations? In your mind, what what's the path forward? Yeah, I mean, there's a couple things. One is that I do think we have to try to create a sense of shame with this administration that they're not doing anything, that they're letting that important tool, you know, what's in the Constitution? The Constitution says this is part of your job, and they're completely ignoring it. Um, you know, I have a piece in Sojourners, which is a, a 
Christian publication this week about about clemency is rooted in the Christian tradition. And I, I would hope that, you know, one of the evangelical leaders that is so supportive of Donald Trump would raise this, you know, something that is a fundamental bedrock Christian virtue that's embedded in the Constitution. Um, you know, the other thing is that, that we need to keep in mind that it, it has to be a bipartisan effort going forward. And there's real, there's, uh, you know, real momentum towards that. Some of the people that have been really helpful, uh, like, like Mike Lee, like Rand Paul are on the conservative side. The Heritage Foundation just this week, um, issued a, a paper, uh, arguing, in, like a lot of us have, that the process has to come out of DOJ and become more efficient and more productive. And that's great when you've got heritage saying that. Um, and I, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really great piece by Paul Larkin Jr. Um, yeah, but, you know, the next, the next uh, administration coming in, um, whether it's Republican or Democrat, during the election, we have to make clear how important this is. And you know, one of the things is I've never heard a question in a debate about clemency. You know, you think about how controversial this often is. It was controversial for Bill Clinton. It was controversial for George W. Bush with Scooter Libby. Uh, the Obama uh, commutations were controversial to some degree. Um, yet no one ever asks about it when they're, when they're debating. Um, and so one of the things I really want to do in the next cycle is, is get in early and, and pressure and really put it to the candidates that this is something you need to take a stand about. You need to talk about this. You need to make this part of the values and principles that you're promoting to the American public. Um, and then once we get to debates, we need to find a way to get those moderators. And if you get somebody in a town hall to say, what about clemency? What are you going to do about that? Um, because it's an important role, and that they shouldn't be ashamed of of thinking proactively about how to use it best. I think that's an excellent point. And I just want to go back and touch on, I think, something important that, that you brought up that I've always kind of wondered myself as a Christian. You know, there's there's a lot of Christians out there who don't, you know, they're in favor of capital punishment. They're in favor of the current drug laws. And like you said, they're not pushing for, for clemency. They're supporting the Trump administration and the Trump administration's ignoring of, uh, of commutations and granting clemency. In your mind, and I know you've, you've, writ you've written books, you've spoken to a lot of Christian audiences. In, in your mind, why do you think it is that so many Christians are in favor, in favor of capital punishment and, and drug laws and things like that? Well, it's... Um it's it's i i think part of it is the way that churches deal with these things too often that they don't they don't raise the issue they don't talk about about that um you know one of the things is that 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 idea of clemency that idea of mercy has really it, it's in the it's in the gospels you know i mean john 8 is uh, where jesus comes upon the people about to stone the woman accused of adultery that's clemency. It's nothing less. And and you think about the dramatic moment when Jesus himself is denied clemency uh, in, with Pilate. Pilate brings him and Barabbas out in, in front of the crowd and says, you know, it's our tradition to grant clemency to one person during the Passover festival. Who do you pick? And they pick Barabbas. But the fact that we have embedded in our tradition that deeply this institution um, really is a it's a it's a real indictment of the larger Christian community that that we don't take this up. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you, and I think it's it's something that that needs to change. And I'll have to have you back on to to talk about your book, Jesus on Death Row, after after I have a chance to read it. <clears throat> but unfortunately, we're we're out of time today. And before I let you go, though, I do want to give you a chance to let my listeners know where they can um, learn more about your work, where they can find your work, and where they can become activists. If somebody listens to this podcast, they say, I, I want to help. What can I do to help? Can you point them in a direction where, where, where they could be of some assistance? Yeah. I mean, first of all, in terms of, of where to look for, uh, you know, what, what, what I write, you, can, you know, Google search will bring it right up. And what, what's coming up uh, next week, I think, is uh, I have a piece in Forbes that's uh, about you know, one of the problems with the Jeff Sessions approach to narcotics is it ignores that that narcotics are a market, that the market's always going to respond. You can't pluck out a producer or a seller and say, oh, we've solved the problem. Um, and so and I think, you know, that hopefully will have an impact. Um, like I said, we need to we need to keep that debate going even as we're discouraged with this administration. In terms of what can people do? Specifically with clemency, I think one of the most important things people can do is treat it as a political issue. If you support a candidate, make part of that support pressing for you know clemency to be used, and not just presidential candidates, but but you know people who are running for Congress uh, or Senate. This is something they need to push as well. And we've seen that being effective with say Mike Lee or, or Rand Paul. Um, uh, you know, get involved politically. And, um, you know, there's uh, right now there's not a lot to track in terms of what's what's being granted. But what I think people on the individual level need to do more than anything is to push this into the political sphere. So part of what we discuss, along with terrorism and the debt and everything else, is mercy and 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 right sizing sentences for people who are doing way too long in prison. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Mark. I know you're you're a busy guy, but thanks for, for sharing your thoughts with the Felony Friday audience. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks so much. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed my interview today with Mark Osler, a really interesting guy. I really enjoyed getting to talk to him, getting to pick his brain, hearing his story, hearing where he came from, and where he got the motivation to focus on reforming the criminal justice system. Truly a remarkable man. And if you guys aren't satisfied with getting three episodes per week from the Lions of Liberty, we deliver you three free, completely no-strings-attached episodes every single week, and that's great, and we love that you guys listen to them and are giving us great feedback on them. But if you want more, if you want more Lions of Liberty, it's possible. It can happen. There is a way. But to do that, you're going to have to pony up just a little bit of cash, just a tiny bit. You're going to have to join the Lions of Liberty Pride. And at our lowest level of support at the Lions of Liberty Pride, just $5 per month, you can get access to all of that exclusive content. And you can join by going to lionsofliberty.com support. If you'd like to help us out more, if you'd like to make a larger monthly donation, maybe $10 or $25, those are our next two higher tiers. At $10, you get free shirt, free koozie. At $25, you get two free shirts, two free koozies, and you get a monthly conference call uh, with us every single month to get to help us out, give us ideas, and steer the direction of the show. Also, a uh, new feature, a new perk, just announced for that $25, what we're calling our Elite Pride members. 
Uh, now those members get 30% off at our Lions of Liberty store, uh, the Lions of Liberty store, which of course you can find at lionsofliberty.store where we have all of our t-shirts and we have posters there now and we're always adding new stuff. But our $25 Lions Pride members now get 30% off, which is essentially getting it for the same price we get it at cost. So it's a, it's a great perk there. Highly encourage you to do that. And, of course, another way to help the show without taking any money out of your pocket just by doing a little interweb surfing is by going over to iTunes. And if you haven't done this yet and you listen to the show all the time, then shame on you because it's so easy to do and it really, really helps us out. You just go over to iTunes. Even if you don't listen on iTunes, please do this if you enjoy this show. Please, please do it. Go over to iTunes. Give us a five-star rating leave a review. It really, truly helps us out with all of those fancy iTunes algorithms. So really think about doing that. We would really, really appreciate that. And while you're on the interwebs, make sure to join the Lions of Liberty Forum. If you haven't done that, just go on Facebook, punch Lions of Liberty Forum in the search bar at the top, get in the forum, and you can partake in all of our uh, discussions. That's our private Facebook group, and it's growing rapidly. There are great discussions Every single hour of every single day, something new is popping up. One more thing, guys, and a very important thing. You guys know that we have been supporting funding charities, funding um, initiatives through Donor C to help people in other parts of the world. And Donor C is an app, of course, created by Greg Glyer, previous guest of the podcast, interviewed by Mark Clare. And what Donors does is allows you to donate to specific causes and actually see exactly where your money goes. And the cause we're supporting right now is in Malawi. There's 300 families that do not have access to clean drinking water. They got to walk 45 minutes each way to get water from a dirty swamp. People die every single year during this walk. This initiative on Donor C, this charity, is going to build a high-quality well right smack in the middle of the village, eliminating that walk, eliminating the dangers from drinking dirty water. It's just a fantastic cause, and it is so, so close to being funded. Guys, there's only $568 as of recording this right now, which is Thursday night. This is publishing tomorrow morning. $568 left, so close to being funded. Go to Donor C. You can find this cause by, you can just search my name on Donor C, John Odermatt. You can find it there. I think you can actually also just search Greg Glyer's name. It's a cause that he, it's a cause that he is sponsoring himself. So you can find it there. And yeah, please donate. Please make an impact. And let's get this well funded. That's all I got for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. Burning.